0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 61, 1-9. Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Luke 4:17 17-18 Every Sunday morning, in countries across the world, men and women stand up to read the text of Scripture. The reading of God's Word usually precedes an interpretation, or sermon, on the Word. That tradition flows quite naturally from the synagogue practice of Jesus' day. On one particular Sabbath day, Jesus was invited to be the reader. He did not choose the biblical book he would read from. A synagogue official prepared for him the scroll of Isaiah. Taking the scroll, Jesus chose which text he would read. He scrolled down to Isaiah 61, 1-2, which begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Who is this anointed one Isaiah speaks of? Having completed the reading and taken his seat, with all eyes fixed on him, Jesus said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Who is the anointed one? Jesus is the anointed one. He is the messianic son of Isaiah 9. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the anointed conqueror of Isaiah 61. We've already seen a tight connection between the anointed conqueror and the glory of God's people. The divine warrior and anointed mediator of chapter 59 were followed by a description of a glorious Zion in chapter 60. A similar connection is made in 61, 1-9. The anointed one liberates and transforms Zion. In our study of chapter 60, we recognized an ideal Zion that will not exist until our sin nature is removed and the new heaven and new earth are established. So we might ask of Jesus, how much of this prophecy was fulfilled on that Sabbath day When you stood to read? Jesus may have given some indication on how to answer that question in the way he quoted Isaiah. His quote is not straightforward. He has added something, he has changed something, and he has left something out. Let's first go through the passage as it is in Isaiah, paying attention to the connection between the anointed conqueror and the people he came to liberate. Then we will come back to Luke and see what we can learn from the way Jesus quoted this text. The passage is not long, so I'll read the whole together, just pointing out one division in the text as we go. We start with 61, 1-3, through 3, the first person declaration of an anointed one who proclaims liberty to God's people. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We then shift in verses 4 through 9 to a confirmation of the Anointed One's work, describing a transformed people and ending with a first-person affirmation from Yahweh. Then they will build the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense. And make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them will recognize them, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Verse 1 highlights for us the language of an anointed one that we have encountered throughout Isaiah and especially in this third book. Notice the parallelism in the two versets of verse 1. First, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and second, because the Lord has anointed me. The anointed one is the one on whom God has poured his Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not indwell every believer under the Old Covenant. That's one of the new things believers experience under the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, the anointing of the Spirit carries a connotation of kingship. The king is confirmed in his role through the anointing of God, symbolically with oil, and spiritually with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that the anointing of the Spirit is only for kings in the Old Testament. The Spirit anoints various believers for roles of service. A prophet can be anointed by the Spirit, a craftsman, a military leader. Who is this anointed one in Isaiah 61.1? He's not Israel. That's an option. We've seen the word Messiah apply to an individual, but also to corporate Israel. We've seen the word servant apply to an individual and to corporate Israel. This is not the case of the corporate community being symbolized by an individual title. He is distinguished from Israel. He's going to remove mourning from Israel. So if he's not corporate Israel, could he possibly be the prophet Isaiah? God commissioned Isaiah as a messenger in chapter 6. And he exhorted Isaiah to speak words of comfort in chapter 40. Similarly, the anointed one here comes to proclaim good news. God does pour out his Spirit on prophets in the Old Covenant, so this could possibly be the anointing of a prophet to speak a message. But in Isaiah, the language of the Spirit has been especially applied to a particular figure. The root of Jesse, the son of David, was anointed by the Spirit in Isaiah eleven two. The suffering servant was anointed by the Spirit in Isaiah 42.1, and the one through whom God makes covenant is anointed by the Spirit in 59.21. The language of anointing connects this figure in 61.1 back to the messianic king in the book of the king and back to the suffering servant in the book of the servant. Also, the language of prophecy should not throw us off. We don't have to make a distinction between Messiah and prophet because while proclamation of good news is the role of a prophet like Isaiah the Messiah also performs the ministry of the word in the third servant song chapter 50 verse 4 the servant says the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word you know, that's the suffering servant the Lord also says of the covenant mediator in fifty nine twenty one. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. The Messiah will be king and prophet. In his prophetic role, he will reveal the true nature of God and he will mediate a new covenant. So we see this figure in chapter 61 being identified with the divine human king of the first third of Isaiah and the divine human servant of the second third of Isaiah and he's going to increasingly be identified with the vision of God as warrior that we encountered in chapter 59. He is the divine human conqueror. and That'll be quite clear by the time we get through 63.6. Here he is pictured as coming with good news. He has a ministry of proclamation. As we go further into chapter 62, it becomes quite clear that he he not only proclaims the good news, he, he brings about the reality that he's preaching. All right, back to first one, and let's continue where we left off. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So we've been asking, who is this anointed one? and I have identified him as the conqueror of these chapters. Now we can ask, who does he conquer and who does he liberate? He comes to the afflicted and brokenhearted, to captives and prisoners. Who is afflicting them? Why are they brokenhearted? Who keeps them as captives or prisoners? The favorable year of the Lord suggests the jubilee of Torah law, the year that all Jewish slaves are given back their freedom. But even with that echo of covenant language, the day of vengeance moves us in a different direction, indicating some wicked oppressor against whom God is going to pour out his wrath. The Babylonians immediately come to mind. The theme of national captivity and redemption ran through the whole book of the servant, chapters 40 to 55. But the book of the conqueror, when not addressing the Jews of Isaiah's day directly, tends to look further into the future, past Babylon. We're not talking about Babylon anymore here. Concerning the present day of Isaiah, the oppression described in chapters 56 through 59 is both external and internal, with a much greater focus on the internal causes of oppression within Israel. The sin nature of God's people underlies every religious, economic, social, and political source of bondage in their society. They keep themselves bound, or they are bound by their own sin. Concerning the far future, the language of mourning at the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3 ties this passage of the Anointed One back to our vision of glorious Zion in the previous chapter. In 62, the people of God are promised the days of your mourning will be over. This anointed one proclaims the fulfillment of that vision. Now, continuing in verse 3, he comes to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So we begin to pick up here, this is not only proclamation, that this, this anointed one is going to bring about uh, what he's proclaiming. The vision back in chapter 60 doesn't happen apart from his work. and He both proclaims and accomplishes liberation. Verse 3 is describing an emotional reversal. You know, at first, we have the mourners of the kind we might imagine after a great tragedy or a At a funeral, they mourn in Zion, cover themselves in ashes, and faint in their emotional weariness. The anointed one removes their ashes and gives them a fresh garland. They are themselves anointed with an oil of gladness. and Like priests, they wear on their shoulders a mantle of praise. They've been washed and dressed up and reinvigorated. Linking again back to chapter 60, where God's people are called the branch of my planting, here they are called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God's glory is tied up with his people. We see a transformation has happened. Back in chapter 59, Isaiah rebukes the people of Judah. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. They are not bringing God glory. Isaiah includes himself with them in confession. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. But now, in chapter 61, the good news of the anointed one declares a transformation. The people of God have a new identity. They will be called oaks of righteousness. I love that image. The strong, enduring wood of the oak tree. Wouldn't you love to be called an oak of righteousness? The planting of the Lord. I'm reminded of God's judgment way back in chapter 5, and he planted a vineyard and he cared for his people, but they just ended up producing stink fruit. That, That people has been transformed. Now they're oaks of righteousness. They reflect the righteous image of God, and in doing so, God is glorified through whom they have become. The good news proclaimed by the Anointed One and accomplished by the conqueror transforms the emotional state of God's people by transforming their spiritual state. Captive to their own sin, they have been transformed into oaks of righteousness. The transformation of their character enables the people of God to address the devastation sin has caused in their society. Verse 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. The good news declared by the anointed one is further confirmed in verses 5 through 9, continuing to match the vision of glorious Zion in chapter 60. The people of Israel will become a kingdom of priests mediating between the nations and God. Foreigners will serve and bring in wealth, whether voluntarily or through conquest, we're not told. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and vinedressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. The imagery of conquest, you know, they have defeated the nations, and so now they're able to live off the wealth of the nations. But in chapter 60, we had something that was different the ones who are conquered are completely annihilated. The wealth comes from the people of the world voluntarily coming to worship God. And Israel has been given a special place in this community. Israel was described as a rebellious child in the first verses of Isaiah. The shame of that rebellion will be removed, you know, at least for the remnant that remains with God they will be granted the honor of a double portion. Verse 7, Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. A double portion is the right of the firstborn. According to Old Testament law, if there are three sons, the inheritance is divided into four parts with two parts going to the firstborn, with the understanding that the firstborn will continue to care for his widowed mother and his unmarried sisters. One of the most famous examples of a double blessing is in the sons of Israel. The reason there is no tribe of Joseph is that his father Jacob recognized him as firstborn, giving him a double portion in the promised land by elevating his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to the same level as the uncles. So when Manasseh and Ephraim both get an equal share along with Reuben and Judah and everybody else, that's Joseph receiving a double portion in the land. Here, the language applies to Israel. Israel's shame as a rebellious child is transformed. She will embrace her role as a kingdom of priests and will be given special recognition as firstborn. That recognition as firstborn follows a transformation of character. God hates the sin of his people, and so he transforms his people, removing their sin nature, thus making possible a covenant that can be everlasting. Verses 8 and 9, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Offspring is another term that connects this poem to the unique divine human hero of Isaiah. In chapter 53, the suffering servant dies and yet sees his offspring. In fifty-nine twenty-one, the offspring of the covenant mediator are of the Spirit and the Word. Here the offspring of the transformed people are blessed of God. And it is the Anointed One who both proclaims and brings about that transformation. This is the text of Isaiah 61, 1-9, through as it stands in Isaiah. We have several reasons to connect this Anointed One with the divine king in the book of the king and the divine servant in the book of the servant. We also see the prophetic and liberating work of the anointed one, connecting him to the transformation of God's people. He came to conquer sin and death, to liberate God's people from shame and mourning, transforming them into a righteous people that can live in everlasting covenant with God. And of course, as Christians, we're thinking, Jesus, Jesus did that. If we have any doubt whether this passage should be applied to Jesus, Jesus removed that doubt when he stood up on that Sabbath day and applied this text to himself. Still, there is some ambiguity in Jesus' declaration. A listener in the synagogue that day may not have correctly understood Isaiah. Uh, even if someone did make the connection between Messianic king, suffering servant, and anointed conqueror, they still may not have understood Jesus' declaration as as Jesus saying, I am that king, that servant, that conqueror. Even for us who do make that connection, who live on the other side of his crucifixion and resurrection, we still might ask, what did Jesus mean when he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? How much of it had been fulfilled at the moment that Jesus sat down in that synagogue? What does that mean? To get at that question, it helps to consider how Jesus quoted Isaiah. The quote is not completely straightforward. Jesus or Luke changed the text. So what I want to do now is consider the changes and possible reasons for the changes, and then see where that takes us in our understanding of how this scripture had been fulfilled by Jesus standing up and proclaiming the words of Isaiah. So here's the full quote. From Luke four, eighteen to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Did you notice any of the differences? Are you aware of any of the differences? It sounds very similar, but it's not quite the same. There are often differences between quotes by New Testament authors and the actual reference in the Old Testament. The most usual reason for differences has to do with translation. Jesus would have read the text from the scroll in Hebrew, but not all Jews spoke Hebrew. The dominant language of the Middle East in the first century was Aramaic. So the text would have been read in Hebrew followed by a reading from an official Aramaic translation called a targum. Bruce Metzger explains a targum as more than translation or paraphrase. Sometimes explanatory words were added, making the targum an interpretation of the Hebrew, sort of like reading the text of a study Bible with a minimal amount of notes or comments included in the text for explanation. We don't know if the Targum reading would have influenced Luke's translation at all. Luke is writing in Greek, so he had to translate Jesus' words. Mostly he uses the recognized Jewish translation of the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint. One of the differences between the two biblical texts is Luke's phrase, to preach the gospel to the poor, and Isaiah's phrase, to preach good news to the afflicted. The differences in these two phrases is an example that's probably accounted for by translation. So good news and gospel, those are synonyms. Uh, And the word for poor in Greek is a valid option for translating the Hebrew word afflicted. So there's no significant problem with the differences in that phrase. There are three more significant differences for us to consider. These three differences consist of something changed, something added, and something left out. So we'll start with something changed. Luke has the phrase recovery of sight to the blind instead of freedom of prisoners. And for us, that comes out quite different. You know, recovery of sight to the blind versus freedom of prisoners, that's not at all the same thing. This is a difference that occurs in the Septuagint that Luke is quoting from. So the change is not really made by Luke, the change is made in the Greek translation that Luke is using. And so we might wonder. How do you get from freedom of prisoners to recovery of sight to the blind? Uh, Scholar D.W. Powell believes the Septuagint may have provided a legitimate rendering of the clause. So he's arguing that the Hebrew text is unclear at this point, and maybe it's possible to take whatever metaphor is being used in the Hebrew to take that to mean freedom of prisoners, or to take that to mean recovery of sight to the blind. Problem whenever we're translating a text is that just sometimes the phrase we're looking at can have two significantly different meanings, and the translator has to choose one, and the typical understanding we get from the Hebrew goes one direction, but the translators uh, from Hebrew to Greek went a different direction. I'm not equipped to have an opinion on the range of possible interpretations in the original Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. I I can't make a comment. I can only say that I I am familiar with the difficulty of translation. I can also observe that recovery of the sight to the blind is an idea associated with Zion uh, earlier in Isaiah in the book of the King. It's also connected in that context with the proclamation of good news and with coming vengeance. So we see this collection of ideas earlier in Isaiah 35, 4-6. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of your God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. So the Septuagint version that Luke is using with the recover of sight for the blind finds expression earlier in in Isaiah 35 that's linked to Isaiah 61. And interestingly, Jesus himself seems to link those two passages together at a different point in his ministry when he's encouraging John the Baptist that he is indeed the Messiah. He's going to say the blind see and the deaf hear. So that's the first curious difference in the text. A second significant difference has to do with something added. Luke inserts the phrase, to let the oppressed go free. Again, the phrase certainly fits the context, but it's not the same idea as setting free captives or prisoners. Scholars believe this is an insertion from six, where Isaiah is describing the kind of fasting God desires Like this, this is what God desires, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free. And that last bit is the actual phrase that's inserted into Luke 4.18. And I think we don't really know, did Jesus insert the phrase? Or did Luke insert the phrase as part of his narration? Luke already seems to have shortened the text read by Jesus, assuming Jesus would have read more than two verses when he stood up for a Sabbath reading. It's possible that Jesus read more, but Luke just quoted this final part. And if Jesus did read more than two verses, how much more did he read? Could Jesus have read from chapter 58 all the way through chapter 61? And if he did, did Luke conflate the text to include a phrase from the beginning of Jesus' reading with the powerful declaration that occurred just before Jesus sat down, the end of the reading? Or did Jesus conflate the text himself as he read to bring in the whole context of the text? Kind of like you find in a Targum, you know, he's reading the text but adding some explanatory words to bring fuller meaning. We can't answer that question, whether it was Jesus or Luke. The result is a conflation that is a bringing together of 58, 6 and 61, 1 through 2 that connects the description of the anointed one in 61, 1 through 2 with the desire of God for his people in chapter 58. Okay, so we've looked at a phrase that was changed the blind see and something added the oppressed go free. Now let's look at something that's left out. And what is left out? seems to me to be very significant. Actually, there are two things left out. Luke doesn't have the phrase to bind up the brokenhearted. I don't see any great significance with that omission. Luke could have simply reduced the amount of text he chose to quote from Jesus, especially since he added added in a phrase, so he dropped out a phrase. Or Jesus could have chosen to drop out a phrase when he added in the phrase. Since it's not clear. The second omission... Does seem to communicate an important truth about the ministry of Jesus. Verse 2 ends in Isaiah with the anointed conqueror coming to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The version Jesus reads omits the day of vengeance of our God, stopping with the first phrase only, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. When Jesus sits down, and says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The emphasis is on the favorable year, not the day of vengeance. In fact, the entire passage of 61, 1 through 9, and really this whole middle section from chapters 60 to 62 focuses on favor to Israel and not on vengeance against God's enemies. That idea is there. The parallel divine warrior sections in 59 and 63, do communicate coming wrath. And judgment does find a central place in the glory of Zion poem in chapter 60, where we are assured in verse 12 that the nation and kingdom, which will not serve Zion, will perish and be utterly ruined. But that's not given any kind of lengthy description like we saw back in the book of the Servant. The lengthy descriptions in 60 to 62 focus on the liberation and transformation of God's people, the glory of Zion. And in these chapters, Jesus chose a quote that emphasizes the proclamation of good news. That good news is good news of liberation from captivity, from blindness, and from oppression, which is then summed up with the phrase, He has come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The idea of favor overlaps the idea of grace, in the biblical context, the two words are synonymous, and so we have this emphasis on favor and, and on Jesus proclaiming that favor, proclaiming good news, proclaiming liberation, proclaiming grace. And that's what we come to expect from Jesus as we read through the Gospels, that he has this ministry of preaching and teaching good news. It's not what the first century people of God expected of Jesus. Not if he's truly the Messiah. If they'd read the prophecies. They connected the coming of the Messiah with a defeat of the wicked and the establishment of a glorious earthly Zion. You know, the things we were reading about in chapter 60. Liberation follows a conquest. For good to triumph, evil must be eliminated. Jesus ought to be a warrior and he ought to have political goals if he's the Messiah. And Jesus understood the confusion of his followers. It's in Luke 7.20 that John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you really the one? John doubts himself. He's not sure that he's understood rightly. He thought he did at the beginning, and he was preaching a ministry of of righteousness. Uh, But he's looking at Jesus, and he's in prison. He thinks he knows what the Messiah is supposed to be about, but he's confused by Jesus' lack of religious, military, or political ambition. Jesus is not acting like a messianic king. And so Jesus responds to John by quoting Isaiah 35, 5 and 61, 1. He sent this message back to John. Tell him the blind receive sight and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you have seen and what you do know. I am who you think I am, even if I am carrying out my mission differently than you thought I would, and this is not because Jesus fails to see himself as the anointed conqueror. Jesus separates his mission as the Messiah into a first coming and a second coming. Later in Luke twenty-one twenty-two, Jesus affirms days of vengeance are coming. He also tells his followers in twenty-one twenty-seven that they will see him return in a very different manner than they were experiencing him now. In this first coming, he came as a baby and grew up a humble carpenter. He came among us as one of us. At his second coming, Jesus says, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The later revelation of John the Apostle is going to describe Jesus at his second coming as a divine warrior, as a king, as a judge, as a conqueror. And this separation by Jesus of his messianic work into two comings helps us understand the divine figures described by Isaiah. The book of the King introduced the messianic son of David. The Messiah will conquer evil, and he will establish his reign over a transformed Zion, just as we have read here in the book of the Conqueror. But before that day can come, the book of the Servant taught us that the Messiah must die. He must first suffer and die for the sake of his people. The Messiah is both the suffering servant and the anointed conqueror. Jesus is fulfilling the role of the suffering servant in his first coming. He will fill the role of anointed conqueror when he comes again. When Jesus sat down and proclaimed, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, I think he was declaring that the prophetic role of the Messiah... Has been fulfilled. I think he's referring to the prophecy about prophecy. That Isaiah said a prophet would rise up and he would declare good news. This is the prophetic role of the Messiah. That's what's been fulfilled. Jesus was anointed to preach good news, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what he's been doing among them. That's what he's doing this Sabbath day. He came as the word to reveal the glory of God and announce God's kingdom plan. He fulfilled the prophecy that a prophet would come and prophesy. That does not in any way suggest that Jesus saw himself as merely a prophet. Some people get thrown off there. Jesus didn't just come to reveal the truth of God. The Messiah is king, priest, and prophet. He is the rare prophet who mediates a new covenant, even more uniquely, he is the one prophet who speaks the very words of God as the word of God himself. He is one with the Father. So he fulfilled the prophetic role announced ahead of time by Isaiah. He is also the subject of his own prophecy. He proclaims the good news. He brings about the good news. And he is the good news. He will conquer sin and death on the cross to release the people of God from captivity to sin, to give his people spiritual sight to free his people from spiritual oppression. That liberation transforms us now to begin to live for him now, to live free of sin, to love our neighbor, to care for the poor and the outcast. But that transformation has not brought about this glorious vision of Zion that's, that's described here. He's going to come again to fulfill the role of the anointed conqueror that we read about in Isaiah 60-62. to 62. He's not just going to give us power over sin. He's going to abolish sin. He's going to remove death. He's going to eliminate mourning. He's going to establish Zion. That is a earthly kingdom in which he reigns. He's going to bring us into the blessing of everlasting covenant with God because our sin nature will be removed we will be able to live forever in the righteous presence of the Holy One of Israel. As Messiah, he first came as suffering servant, but he's coming again as anointed conqueror. And we're going to get more on Jesus as divine warrior in our next lesson, where we're going to finish out this middle section of the last third of Isaiah, the book of the anointed conqueror. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.